Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, your leading source of info for insights and best practices in digital health and digital transformation. Join host Patty Padmanabhan, CEO of Demo Consulting and co-author of Healthcare Digital Transformation, how technology, consumerism, and pandemic are accelerating the future in conversation with leading practitioners of healthcare and technology. This podcast is sponsored by HealthNext, the enterprise-class virtual care platform from Tech Mahindra Health and Life Sciences. Hello again, and welcome to my podcast. This is Patty, and it is my great privilege and honor to introduce my special guest today, Nick Patel, Chief Digital Officer of Prisma Health. Nick, thank you so much for setting aside the time, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Patty. Great to be here. Thank you. Now, Prisma Health, I believe, came about uh, as a merger of a couple of different health systems. Would you like to take a couple of minutes for the benefit of our listeners to tell us a little bit about who Prisma Health is? Yeah, sure. Prisma Health is the largest, most comprehensive uh, nonprofit hospital in South Carolina. It was formed about three to four years ago when Palmetto Health, which was located in the central portion of South Carolina, and Greenville Healthcare System in the upstate merged to form Prisma Health. We span over 50% of the state. Uh, We have 18 hospitals, about 30,000 team members. We're actually the largest private employer in the state of South Carolina, 330 ambulatory practices, and about 45% of South Carolina live within 15 minutes of us. We also have two comprehensive stroke centers and two affiliated medical schools as part of it. And I actually did my my residency training here with them. Right. And you've been with Prisma Health in its previous form for a long time. So you've really seen this organization grow. Yeah, fantastic. So Nick, you're, you're currently the chief digital officer. What does that mean? What are your responsibilities and who does the role report into today? You know, it's an interesting journey to get to become chief digital officer. I was previously in my, you know, I'm an internal medicine physician, number one. I've been practicing 17 years. And through my 17 years, I've seen us transform from paper to EHR and the disruption that caused and to what we're moving into now, into digital health and digital transformation. As part as my career grew, I was asked to be in different committees, you know, when we were rolling out the electronic health system and then eventually became CMIO for the medical group. And as we were going through this transition to becoming Prisma Health, the CEO asked me, said, Nick, what would you like to do next? What is, where should you be doing in Prisma Health from a digital and innovation standpoint? And I had attended HIMSS you know, health information management uh, group that they have, the big conference that they have every year, right. uh, about two years prior. And Hal Wolf, who's the CEO of HIMSS, had a presentation, that a keynote that he was giving. And I got a chance to have dinner with him the night before he had I invited a small group. And he leaned over and said, Nick, what do you do? And he says, what do you see yourself doing in the next couple of years? And I kind of described this thing where no one was really focusing on patient experience and access and digital transformation. As CMIO, you're really kind of just focused on informatics and day-to-day activities of EHR and optimization. CIO is really just focused on infrastructure, hardware, networking, making sure we um, 
uh, follow security guidelines and things of that nature. But there was no one in between that looked beyond the EHR, that looked beyond just hardware infrastructure. And then Hal Wolf had talked about this role called the chief uh, digital officer, how that person will be instrumental in truly transforming care that is patient-focused, improving access, taking digital health, remote patient monitoring, artificial intelligence, and other things to the next level. And so I pitched that. Essentially, I wrote my job description and gave it to the CEO, and they really liked it. And after some, you know, wordsmithing, uh, you know, we came to an agreement of my role as Chief Digital Officer and Vice Chair for Innovation. And currently, I answer directly to the system CMIO. But if you look across the country, there's that it's the role has, you know, different reporting structures. Right. Uh, for example, a CDO can in a lot of places answer directly to the CEO and where they shape true strategy for a health system. Sometimes they answer to the CIO, the chief or the chief um, administrative officer. So it just really varies. Yeah, that is a fascinating story. In fact, of how you saw the future through a chance conversation that you have with somebody. And that's so interesting. And now that you're chief digital officer and you are the first chief digital officer for the system, could you give us a brief overview of the digital programs that you've rolled out in your role at Prisma Health in the last couple of years? And maybe give us an example of a program that has made a significant impact for your organization. Yeah, that great question. So before COVID, you know, we had already started down looking at where we wanted to be when it comes to patient access, how we wanted to hold out Prisma Health around virtual visits and things of that nature. And the first project that I did as Chief Digital Officer in conjunction with the system CMIO was around online scheduling. So when you bring two healthcare systems together, there's a lots of things that need to happen. Every system did their protocols and workflows differently. We also needed to get to know each other, right? As providers, who we were, specialties we had, and where did we have them? So if you were to look at our websites on both sides, prior to us becoming together, it was disjointed. We have doctors in wrong locations. We had doctors listed that were not even here anymore, things of that nature. So what first thing we wanna do is produce a source of truth as our provider directory, so that a provider, a patient can go online and find the right doctor for them. And so they could put in diabetes and say, okay, these are all the doctors in primary care, internal medicine, family practice that specialize in diabetes and who you might wanna, and put your zip code in, you'll find the person closest to you. So right. that was number one, and that helped for many reasons. Number one, it helped us as a system because you know we needed people to know who we were and our assets and what services we provided, but also it helped us internally set up a database of all our providers you know, where you had pictures, videos, testimonials, we had our ratings, we had our credentialing, we had all of that in one singular place. I guess my evil plan was to say that we now have a profile on every single provider. So it's kind of like a user profile. So no matter what digital asset we then build, virtual asset, then that same picture, that same profile moves with that person. So that was foundational for me, I think, that having that there. And then obviously it helped us come to some realization if we're going to be patient focused and focus on patient experience, then we need to come to standardized rules around scheduling and scheduling templates and all those things. So that was part of that 
that project. And it's still, I mean, we're live and it's, it's doing well. We're now a year and a half into it, but we still find that there, we still got a lot of work to do to shape that. So outside of online scheduling and video, some of the other assets that has really helped during COVID is around automation and chatbots. So we had partnered with a company around different types of programs, hypertension programs, diabetes, post-operative care, and that automates that process and says, hey, you're a hypertension patient. I noticed your last three blood pressure readings are high. Have you been taking your medicine? Yes or no. Have you been following an appropriate heart healthy diet? Yes or no. Are you doing X amount of steps? So just kind of engaging the patient at home as a little digital kind of nudge in between those office visits of how you are doing. Now, what we're doing with that is taking it to another level and adding remote patient monitoring. So we partner with the company to now have kitted devices that are fully connected, that the person literally puts on and I start getting data coming into our EHR and we're setting a threshold. So if I have, Patty, if you're my patient, you have hypertension and say, Patty, I'm going to put you on a blood pressure cuff. Just check your blood pressure once a day to start, maybe twice a day. And if I, in, on the background, have set up a threshold, so if I want to know when Patty's blood pressure goes over X over three consecutive times, then the chatbot's going to ping you and say, hey, Patty, I know your blood pressure is going up. Now it's going to really engage you and ask you some questions. Now, if you answer those questions three times in a negative light, then a care coordinator, a PharmD, a nurse will give you a call to say, Patty, what's going on? So, well, I didn't get that medicine Dr. Patel sent me. It was too expensive when I got to the pharmacy. I figured I'd talk to him when I see him in three months. No, let's change it now. So we don't want three months of higher blood pressure for you, right? So this is the thing about digital health that we're trying to do is to get out of that mindset of the only time you care is rendered is in the office. Care should be rendered at any time, at home, especially in between office visits, because that's where you live. You don't live in my office. I can't control what happens outside the office. And being a uh, practicing internist for 17 years, I could tell you that how many times a patient says, oh, doc, I didn't want to bother you. I figured we talked to you about it in three months or six months, our next visit. You mean to tell me your blood pressure has been this high for that long and your sugars have been this high for that long and all these things, and instead of me proactively knowing as your caregiver that of how you're doing and pinging you and keeping you engaged to go for walks and motivating you and gamifying that and say, if you keep doing this, do another 5,000 steps and you're going to get 10% off your next visit here, you're going to get 20% coupon to go to your gro local grocery store. Mm -hmm. All these sort of things start to tie together. And that's what I'm trying to achieve here. That sounds very, very comprehensive. And uh, everything that you talked about, Nick, these are things that I see other health systems also investing in. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the point that you made about scheduling and access, that is by far, that seems to be by far the number one focus, especially so in the uh, wake of COVID when, uh, you know, in-person visits practically came to a halt. And now it's probably going back a little bit and you're getting people back within your uh, clinic and your facilities and so on. Yep. Specifically in response to COVID, did you launch anything that was going to help uh, your patients and your patient populations? Yeah, actually, I'll never forget the weekend. It was the second week in March, and we had already, like many healthcare systems, which was a very tough decision to stop elective surgeries. As you know, surgeries, yeah. elective surgeries, specifically are a huge revenue generator for any yeah. healthcare system. So that was a big decision. But then we started to think about, well, if we're doing that, 
you know, having patients come into their ambulatory visits, also a very high risk. We already noticed that a lot of our patients, our cancellation rates are going up the, through the roof. People are scared to come in. They saw what was happening. They're fall, trying to follow the rules, distancing and wearing a mask and hand washing. And then as you remember, Patty, in the beginning, it was chaotic. The new information was coming out on a regular basis. And so very fluid in the beginning. And um, so I, I reached out to the president of the medical group and I said, you know what, we need to virtualize all ambulatory visits right away. So I came up with a workflow, worked with a team of how that would work. We did, you know, essentially take the scheduled patients, flip them to a video visit or an audio visit. And at that time, you know, there was still no clarity on reimbursement for those. So, but we knew that it was important because the last thing you need is to have patients who have chronic disease exacerbate and then go to the ER or be admitted. It's the last place you want people to go. Mm -hmm. So we found it that it was important to be able to provide continuous care to our patients and virtualize that. And so if you look at last year, we must have done, I don't know, about 20,000 virtual visits. Since March, we've done 360,000 virtual visits at Prisma Health. And one of the other things as part of COVID was, you know, the thing about COVID is pretty standard, right? Fever, cough, shortness of breath, primary symptoms, secondary symptoms, lace of taste of smell, and some other things. We wanted to make sure that when we screen patients or patients, you know, wanted to know should they get tested, you know, they didn't have to call a provider and get the same questions that a CDC guideline or WHO already had out. So we worked with our chatbot vendor and they actually had produced a COVID chat around COVID screening. And since March, we've had 110,000 people use the COVID screening chat. And it puts you in the three boxes, green, you're fine, you're worried well, here's education on how to stay well. Yellow, that you have some primary symptoms of COVID, but you may just have a common cold, you may have something else going on, let's do a virtual visit. And then red, you have all three primary symptoms plus exposure and that early on, of course, travel, travel's not an issue now, but it was in the beginning. You need to get tested and here's our community testing sites that you can go get tested. So it had been very successful. And then we expanded that because we also had to screen our own employees, right? So instead of having screeners at every door, we rolled out a digital badge. So you do abbreviated screen on your phone. It gives you a, a green pass with a check mark, similar to what you would use to check in with an Apple wallet paid or something like yeah. that airline. Yeah. And it would have your name, it would have your date, and it have the timestamp and it decays. So after 12 hours, the pass goes away and your next shift, you have to come and do it again. And obviously that gives us data on who's going through, which of our employees are going to the red box, who needs to be tested and isolated and, and business health uh, reaching out to them. So that we also had the demand uh, from the community as COVID later on in the summer, people were trying to return to work. A lot of employers wanted their employees to come back with a doctor's excuse saying they're okay to come back to work. Well, again, same process, but now we took that chat and you enter your name, your email address, and if you, so long as you pass, you get a digital email white label to you to say you are now clear to go. Plus it has links and education as part of that email. So there's a lot of things like that that we did, the virtual visits, both asynchronous and video uh, that we did as Medicare and payers finally came up and gave us a final rule on reimbursement, they, they retroed it back to March 1st. So we were, you know, so that's 360,000 virtual visits we got paid for that uh, historically we wouldn't, so. 
Wow. Now, the, the order of magnitude of the change, right, the 10x increase in business, that seems to be a very common story across the nation. Whoever I talk to has seen that kind of volume changes. Uh, in your case, it seems like you already had a virtual visit a telehealth program in place and you had to scale it up. But I've talked to others where they had practically no virtual consoles and they had to overnight switch to a virtual care model. Yeah. Now, when you have this kind of, this degree of change, and I often hear this, this expression that what we plan to do in five years, now we've had to do it in five months and things like that. Correct. What kind of a stress does it impose on the system from a technology, from a process, from a people change management training standpoint? Can you talk to us about the experience you went through in just getting this up and running and getting it right? Yeah, you know, I was pleasantly surprised. You know, historically, there are a lot of steps to take from change management and governance, making sure InfoSec and ITS, informatics, clinical uh, leadership all are aligned. And it takes time. And usually it's, you go from one to the other, to the other, to the other. Well, here it was linear. We did it all together, right? So when we had a meeting around changing ambulatory visits to virtual, that workflow from a technology standpoint, from a provider standpoint, from leadership standpoint, from a, a rev cycle standpoint, everybody was on the call. Everybody did their part, right? And that's how we were able to move this so quickly. So yes, there was a lot of stress, but there was also a lot of teamwork, which was very great to see. And um, is, I think has made us understand how you can really streamline the process in the future by working together in a linear fashion versus a hierarchical manner. And, um, you know, but, you know, we had challenges like anybody else because not every single computer within Prisma Health was telehealth ready, right? Did, not every, every monitor had a camera built in or speakers yeah. or mics. So as everybody saw, there is a massive shortage of webcams and speakers and mics as everybody's trying to buy them. And we had some of that, but we also then talking, you know, when I had my one-on-one -on -one with the CIO, it's like, hey, you know, Maybe from now on, let's not uh, skimp on $10 or $20 when we can get an integrated camera and mic and speaker in every all-in-one computer or desktop that we have, right? Instead, just let's make sure that any clinic asset or uh, computer is telehealth ready with these basic things. And so that's one of the other things. The other thing was, as we became Prisma, we still had disjointed network infrastructure. So you have different SSIDs as you went from one system to the other, from university practice to non-university practice, and bandwidth varied, access varied. And so we had to quickly make sure that we had people with laptops and iPads and other things were fully connected in our secure network so they can render this care. And we needed to make sure as all these providers, Monday through Friday and even weekends were delivering care, had high quality broadband access. And so some of that was also something that you had to start to think about. You had to think about documentation. You had to, you know, CMS and others had documentation that they had yeah. to delineate between an office visit and a virtual visit and in an audio visit and a video visit and yeah. attestation statement that went with that. So again, working with informatics and educators to make sure, and then rev cycle and coding, billing and compliance, being part of that and say, Nick, this is what needs to be in every note. And, you know, this is how it needs to sequence out. In the beginning, it was this massive statement. Then it became very narrow because we overshot and we didn't, every health system wanted to do everything they could to make sure they got reimbursed for these visits. So they put more than they needed. 
So a lot of that. And then just questions from billing and coding of how do you do a level four or five level visit when you don't have components of a physical exam for some of these things? And how do you maximize things you can do and things you can't do? And how do you make sure you document the time because you have to still have a time requirement? So yeah, it was a, it was a, it's a, I mean, I could tell you it's a lot of work. I've since March, my team and uh, many others have been working 12, 14 hour days doing this and operationalizing this. But at the same time, we continue to grow and say, look, we need to expand our RPM program. We need to expand enhanced video visits and we need to expand chatbots. So you can't become stagnant in now because you just don't know what's going to happen with COVID. I mean, we have our own yeah. personal thoughts about it and there's become unfortunately politicized, but you know, you don't know what's going to happen. And I think we're in this for the long haul for at least another year. And so we have to prepare as a health system to continue to innovate, but to take care of our patients and be ready for whatever the next wave is going to happen. So Yeah, no, in that context, uh, now, you've seen a dramatic shift towards uh, virtual care. Everybody has. There was an extreme shift in the immediate wake of the pandemic. And all the recent uh, anecdotes and the, and the data seems to indicate that there's some degree of pullback and uh, the traffic is flowing back into the facilities, maybe for you know pent-up demand, maybe for procedures that cannot be put off anymore and, you know, for some things that you cannot continue to do on a virtual basis. So for whatever reason, I don't know if we have reached an equilibrium point in terms of the share of virtual care in the overall context of care. Could you talk a little bit about that? Where do you, do you see some kind of an equilibrium in your own system? And if not, how long do you think we're going to have to wait to see because you're making a lot of investments, right? And these investments yeah. are not going to pay off immediately. Some of them are there for the longer term. How are you approaching this for the longer term? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We actually um, try to ping and, and get a pulse of our providers and how things are going on a regular basis. And we're, we know that our number of virtual visits have declined and people are coming to our practices again and they want to get out of their house. They want to see their provider. We're also finding that... Um, a lot of social determinants have come to light that you didn't typically think about, like tech literacy, broadband access, hardware access, right? So a lot of the older patients at risk, really higher at risk patients or elderly patients, you know, they have flip phones. They can't do a virtual visit. They don't have a desktop. They're technology challenged. And so you still have to have a hybrid approach, right? You can't just force everyone to use this. So we had, we never closed our offices. We still had people come in. There are things that happen like uh, procedures that you have to do, minor procedures or lacerations or abrasions or an abscess or things of that nature. You still gotta be able to do some hands-on care for patients. So in asking the providers, where do you see this going post COVID or the new world post COVID, we find if reimbursement and the you know, federal regulations and policies remain the way they are, we suspect about 20 to 30% of all ambulatory visits will flip to, to virtual. And that does a couple things. One, it allows you to see patients who miss their appointments because they have transportation issues, who live in rural areas, helps you with outreach, but it also lets you see people more often. So instead of seeing someone every six months with chronic disease or three months, now you're able to check in on them digitally right, and see how you're doing, either through RPM, that's just seamlessly coming, or true checking in, you know, video. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's kind of where we're going to be. 
but I mean, we still see patients. I, I, I'm still a practicing doc and, you know, I can tell you on Monday and Wednesday, I saw most of my patients uh, wanted to come in and see me. And obviously all the protocols are there. Everybody's wearing masks and everyone has yeah. E and all that. But I think that's where we're going to land. But I think this is, you know, what you learn about this is that, you know, as a doctor, right, you have an average panel of 1,500 to 2,000 patients, you know, if you want to try to keep a good volume. and But with true movement to population health, one doctor should be able to take care of 10,000 patients using APPs, care coordinators, pharmacists, social workers in the community, and be able to take care of diabetes on a larger scale, on a community scale, versus checking in one patient and checking out another patient. Because we don't have enough doctors to go around, right? I mean, if you look at the, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality in CDC, 2015, we did about a billion encounters, right? 990 million encounters. 61% of those had chronic conditions and 51% of the billion went to primary care. And there's not enough primary care to go around. And so you have to start thinking about how do you develop the next generation of care delivery? And this has been discussed since for eight, since the 1800s. Actually, there was an article that I, I, my friend showed me. In 1879, there was an article that came out in Lancet. It was a peer-reviewed physician journal, and it talked about using telephone to reduce unnecessary office visits. Yeah. And then, and then <laughs> in 1925, it came out in Science Invention Magazine, how to use this. So I think that finally we have some good momentum around that this will stay around long after COVID's gone. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that model where you do more with one doc and surrounded by a team of professionals from different disciplines. And that is, in fact, the model that many smaller countries around the world are actually practicing because the density of doctors to the population is nowhere near as close to where we are here in the United States. So this is a problem they've lived with for a really long time, and they've already gone down the path that you just, just described. And I feel like the technology is the next stage of evolution in that model where you're able to achieve more through technology enablement and achieve more, deliver more care, take care of more people with the same group or with the same number of individuals. So that's a, that's a whole interesting another conversation, I guess. Switching topics just a little bit, Nick. In this show, in this podcast, we discuss digital front doors a lot, and you've already described many of the initiatives that go into a digital front door program from the point of view of access in particular. And uh, when you map out the patient journey, uh, you know, you identify the high impact touch points and uh, you use digital solutions for implementing those uh, care models. What would you say today are the high impact digital engagement touch points for a typical patient journey? And more so in the context of your patient population, could you share your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that patients want a retail experience. They don't want to have to fill out paperwork everywhere they go. And we're good about doing that in healthcare, right? There's paperwork. (laughs) And uh, you probably personally have experienced that. I know I have. I think part of it is how do you use automation? I think for me, as much as we can automate processes in healthcare, the better. As, as my friend and, uh, on a previous call around artificial uh, intelligence and medicine said, how do we take the robot out of the human? We do a lot of things in healthcare that are just robotic, that don't require our clinical background and training to do those activities. 
And so from a digital front door standpoint, how do you virtualize and how do you virtualize the whole intake process? And how does that data become singular? And then that's where it comes down to. Data is extremely important. Discrete, non-siloed data that is continuous throughout all systems, no matter which one you're in. And so when you look at one patient, you see a true 360 view. It doesn't matter if they're calling through a contact center, through a CRM process, or through an office, or virtual, or through a campaign in the community, data is singular. So I think the thing that you have to concentrate on is thinking about how do you modernize your data systems? You know, we moved away from hard assets into the cloud. You know, we partnered with a Snowflake around cloud computing and storage, which has really helped efficiency. And there's a lot of different things that we're trying to do to standardize workflows and protocols, as you mentioned earlier, so that, you know, everyone is singing off the same sheet of music. And that helps the patient, it brings the cost down, and the experience is improved. I would say that having automation as part of your process and your digital front door, as well as care, is very important through either chatbots or other means, through your CRM. You know, we're very working very close with our CRM partner on some of these items. Yeah, interesting. We do see that, in fact, uh, we're doing a lot of work in the space where we're using the CRM platform. We're helping a health system use the CRM platform to drive a multi-modal, multi-channel communication protocol, which is driven largely through automation. And uh, that's exactly what you're, what you're talking about. We are coming up to the end of our time here, Nick, and I just want to take uh, the last minute or two that we have to ask you a couple questions. If you had one best practice that you would like to share with your peers in the industry, what would that be? I think the biggest advice I would give to anyone who's going down this journey is that when you look, don't start with the technology, number one. Start with the need. What is the problem you're trying to solve, right? And then see how technology can help you get there. You know, and the technologies that you have it must be interconnected ecosystem that is efficient, intuitive, and then take advantage of automation driven by data. And that is, I think, very important. I think what healthcare systems make a lot of mistakes is that they start with technology and then try to solve a problem. And that's not where you want to go. And you want to keep it patient-centered, provider-driven is extremely important. So that's, I would say that's my key things, takeaways from our journey so far in this, in this world. Fantastic. That is such a fantastic note to uh, close out this conversation with. Nick, thank you so much for setting aside the time and for talking to us and for sharing all of the insights and your experience. I wish you all the very best and I wish your team all the very best in the coming months. Thank you, Patty. Same to you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We invite you to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Healthcare Digital Transformation Leader. Write to us at info at thebigunlock.com with your feedback and questions.